Again, I just want to welcome everybody, those listening online. If this is your first time here at Restoration, we just want to especially welcome you. Uh, this is a very interesting kind of series. We're going to be uh, covering various kinds of topics. These meetings are designed for every kind of person, from the student to the scholar, to the skeptic to the seeker. These presentations will answer life's greatest questions and lead us to that which can only truly satisfy. You will be challenged, impacted, and ultimately changed by what you experience here. Can you say amen to that? Here are some of the topics that are coming up. Tomorrow night, eternity past and the risk of God. That's going to be a very unique kind of message. You don't want to miss that. Friday, we'll be doing from tragedy to triumph, the problem of evil, and there's going to be a special Q&A afterwards. Sabbath morning, I'll be sharing my testimony. Monday night, I'll be doing a sermon called The End of Social Injustice, a hell of a sermon. Tuesday night will be another special message, and it's called How to Ace Your Exam and Be Normal Still. Amen. That's so relevant for a college town. I've spent many years of my life in college. I uh, spent four years at a community college, almost uh, uh, several months at a um, Cal State Fullerton, do two years at Adventist College. I take other college classes where I pastor at. I'll be starting Stan State as a philosophy student in the fall. So I have always been part of the educational system. I shared yesterday some of the educational background of my family. It was very intense. A lot of people are often blown away, but if you're Indian, you totally understand. I actually became a Bible-believing Christian when I was in college. And looking back, I really praise God because those were some of the best years of my life where I had the greatest kinds of growth during those formative years where I was understanding my identity, my place in this world. And to those who are still in college, I just want to say this. You are in some of the best years of your life. Don't waste it. Amen? Don't waste it. And if you don't realize what God's purposes are for you, I really want to challenge you to start praying, God, what would you have me to do today? You know, one day I was actually speaking at an Indian college, and there were thousands of Muslims and Hindus there. And it was very difficult to get their attention. They were speaking English at that college, but everyone was just very rowdy, everyone was very distracted. So I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to get their attention? So I did this. I asked a very interesting question. I said, how many people here know their grandpa? Most of the hands went up. I said, very good. How many people here know where their grandpa was born? Most of the hands went down. There were still just a few hands that were raised. I asked another question. I said, how many people know your grandpa's favorite hobby? More hands went down. There were just about two or three hands left. I told everybody in the audience, there was about a thousand students. I said, take a good look at those two students. And I made this point. In about two or three generations, your identity will be extinct from this world. Then they started listening. We have one life to live, ladies and gentlemen, one life. And what we do with that life is of utmost importance. And better you realize it now than at the end of your life. Being a pastor, I oftentimes get to visit people. And one of the things I constantly encounter is a lot of regret at the end of people's lives. 
I don't want to come to the, my end of, the end of my life and say, you know what, I regret most of it. I want to be able to say, I live life to the fullest. Amen? Don't you want to say that as well? That you took advantage of every opportunity that God has given to you. And just being here at the Restoration Series for the next week and a half, this is going to be a life-changing, unwasted opportunity for you to grow closer to Christ. Can you say amen to that? And that's what this series is all about, answering life's greatest question. Socrates said it this way, the unexamined life is not worth what? Living. The unexamined life is not worth living. Um, it was very interesting. Socrates is somebody who was actually, um, he was punished, he was executed, he had to drink some, what they call hemlock, which was poison, simply because he began to espouse new kinds of teaching and thoughts that was very controversial for the culture at that time. And as we share the beautiful truth of God's Word, we shouldn't be surprised that there's going to be some kind of opposition to God's Word. They are revolutionary truths. Can you say amen to that? And as you continue to come out this rest to this restoration series, you're going to be blown away by some of the things you're going to learn. Some of the things you're going to learn. You know, I did a, a series not too, it was about two or three years ago. And the name of the series was called The Dining of Minds. The Dining of Minds. And what this series was all about, it took place, it was all about this uh, dinner conversation that took place between Jesus, Muhammad, Krishna, and Buddha. Jesus, Muhammad, Krishna, and Buddha. Now just imagine what kind of table talk that might be. If you were to transport all these various historical figures just right down to this place where there would be this kind of kitchen table talk, what would they be discussing? Now imagine for yourself, there's a young Loma Linda college student. This individual, third year of med school, he's struggling with life. He has so many kinds of pressures, pressures from the family, pressures from school, pressures from his own heart, his own spirituality seems to be at an all-time low. This individual is questioning his religious upbringing. He's questioning the faith of his parents. He's questioning church. God's word does not make too much sense to him anymore. And here he is at a very interesting point in his life, a very pivotal point, where he is questioning life altogether. Now just imagine for yourself in your sanctified minds. Amen? There should have been more amens for that one. Just imagine this individual is here sitting at the corner of a restaurant. Not too many people are there. Nice Italian restaurant. I love Italian food. But he's just there in the corner, sitting at a table, hoping no one will notice him. He's contemplating life, examining his past, realizing that the future doesn't look too bright for him. And here he is at the point of his life where he's wondering whether or not to take his own life. I actually had a cousin who unfortunately did. He was going to San Diego State University. Pressures got to him too much. Relationship issues got to him too much. And he took his life in the very prime of his years. In India, most suicides occur during exam time. 
It's a very interesting time, a time full of pressure and all sorts of influences that are taking place. And here you are, you're struggling with your own mind. This individual, he's right there, and all of a sudden, while he's in this corner, thinking that no one would notice him, he feels like the loneliest person in the entire world, when all of a sudden, he is joined by four mysterious strangers. Can you imagine what that scene probably looks like? Here he is, and all of a sudden, you have Muhammad, the Islamic prophet, show up. You have Buddha show up. You have Krishna show up. And then you have Jesus showing up at the end. Can you imagine how startled this man might be? But as he begins to pick up on who these individuals are, all of a sudden, all the education he received in the past begins to come back, and he begins to recount the influence each one of these religious leaders had. Just think about this, ladies and gentlemen. All of them include probably millions, if not billions, of followers. You have Krishna, adherents of Krishna religion, or Hinduism, which I come from. That's my background. You also have individuals who come from the Buddhist background, millions of followers who are following Buddha. You have people who are of the Islamic persuasion as well. And then you also have those who are of the Christian faith. And these four religious leaders who've had so much influence in the entire world had placed their mark upon history here some way, somehow, they're sitting before this young man who's about to take his life. Oh, can you imagine what kind of conversation that probably is? Who would even go first? Can you imagine the issues they might discuss? Can you think to yourself what they might bring with themselves as they are talking with this young man, trying to help him make sort of this life that he is now living? Can you imagine what kind of questions might come? It's very interesting. I did a survey with some people and asked them, what would you do if Jesus showed up at your table with Muhammad the prophet, you also have Krishna and Buddha? What kind of conversation would you have? What kind of questions would you ask to these four religious thought leaders that have impacted this world? Some of the questions that came up, very interesting questions. Here they are. Why is there suffering? Very interesting. If you're a Christian apologist, that's the number one question that comes up. Why is there suffering? Number two, who is God? Who is God? Number three, how can I be saved? These are probably the top three questions that would come up if people had their chance. You know, Larry, um, Larry King actually, was asked a question one day. He was asked this question. He said, if you can interview anybody in this entire world throughout history, who would you interview? And he thought about it for a second. He said, I would interview Jesus. He said, if you had one question to ask Jesus, what would you ask Jesus? This was his question. He said, are you born of a virgin? And he said, the answer to that question will change all of history. But just imagine, if you could ask questions to these four religious thought leaders, what would you say to them? What kind of things would come up? Would you bring up things about your past, things about the future? Would you bring up things about your education? Would you bring up things about your family, about church, about God? If you take a good look at this, these are the top three questions people would ask if they could encounter these thought leaders in person. Who is God? Why is there suffering? And how can I be saved? Ooh, can you imagine what kind of conversation that probably is? Very intense. So here they are at this table. Muhammad the prophet goes first. And Muhammad announces himself and he said, I am Muhammad the prophet, the prophet of Allah. 
And he says this, I believe what is wrong with your life is that you are not adhering to the principles Allah has laid down in the Quran. You need to plead for forgiveness, you need to change your life, and you need to begin a new path following Allah. The young man says, but what do I do with the struggles in my own heart? Allah says this, or excuse me, Muhammad says this. He says, the problem is, is not that you have an evil heart, but sin is simply just action. And action can be forgiven by Allah. That's what you need to do. Seek his forgiveness, change your life, become a, a, a Muslim. In fact, when I went to Pakistan, it was very interesting. Pakistan is 95% Muslim. 95%. 95%. Can you just imagine that? 95% of the country is Muslim, which means the Imam's prayers, they begin at a very early time and they are not synchronized. 5 a.m. they will begin, some will begin at 5.03, 5.15, and they have loudspeakers on each one of these mosques. When I was in Pakistan speaking to the Adventist seminary there, I went to sleep that first night, I woke up because I heard this, I woke up, I looked in the window and I thought to myself, what in the world is this? And I saw there a loudspeaker on the top of a mosque. But it was interesting. Like I said, they were not synchronized. So all of a sudden I heard over there, Allah Kabbalah! And then throughout all of the land, as far as my eye could see, I could see this call to worship, this call to prayer. They had to wake up. They put everything on loudspeakers because there was this demand that you needed to follow Allah. And if you didn't, you were going to be awakened regardless. One day I was sitting with a young Muslim man and he said, told me I needed to follow Allah and I said to him, I said, why is that? He said, because he is the one true God and Muhammad is his prophet. And then I asked him a simple question, I said, but can you tell me how to deal with the evil in my own heart? He said, just ask for forgiveness, Allah will change you. And I said, that's it. And then I said, who atones for evil? How do you atone for sin? He then said something to me that was very interesting. He said, there is no need for an atonement. Allah will simply forgive your sins. And I thought to myself, that is very interesting. So here's this young man from Loma Linda, and Muhammad talks to him first. All of a sudden, Krishna butts in. Krishna says, young man, let me begin to give you a lesson on life. One day, there was this great war. And this war is written in the book or this epic poem called the Mahabharata. And a part of this Mahabharata, there's a special section called the Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita. And in this section, there was this great war that had taken place. And right before this great war that was about to take place between two families, I began to talk with Arjun, the prince. And he said, I told Arjun, the prince, who was worried about fighting his brothers, I told him many deep lessons. He said, why should I attack my brothers? And Krishna said, because this is the great drama. And every actor must play his part. Whether or not you like it, 
They are warriors, and they will die as warriors. And you are born into this particular kind of category, this kind of caste system, and this is who you are, and you must live your life to the fullest, even if it means destroying your brother. And Arjun continued. Then Krishna tells this young man who's from Loma Linda, he says to him, he says, the problem is this, young man. You have a very high karmic debt. Who you were in your past life has built up, and now this is coming to the surface. The reason why you are depressed, the reason why you are in despair is because your karmic debt has come up, and now it must be paid back. And the only way you're going to deal with this problem is by starting to do very good works. Change your life. Start doing good works. Follow the path that I have laid out. And what you will discover is that your karmic debt will be paid off and eventually in this life, when it comes to an end, you will reach that final stage, which is nirvana, and you will become one with the universe. And the young man's listening. And all of a sudden, Buddha jumps in. Gautama Buddha. And he says, young man, let me tell you what you need to understand. The problem is this. Evil is just an illusion. All suffering in this world comes from desire. The reason why there is suffering in your life, young man, and in your heart is because of the great desire. Remove the desire and the suffering will go away. Evil is just an illusion. The young man says, well, what about God? What about my accountability to God? Buddha says this. God, that's for you to decide who God is. It's very interesting. Buddha did not take a stance on whether or not there was a God. He held no accountability to him. He did not see himself as God. He saw himself as a great teacher. And while this conversation is taking place, none of these answers seem to be satisfying the things that are going on in this man's heart because apparently he is struggling with something nobody else knows about. He's struggling with the issues deep in his own heart. And as he is struggling with that, he begins to think about the greater problem that is, this, that is in the world today. And that is the problem of evil. Not just the evil within, but the evil out in the world. You know, one day when I was taking a philosophy class, it was actually the class called the reasoning. There was not too much reason in that class. The teacher said something very interesting. The professor said this. He said this, that all of life's problems will be eventually solved by philosophy. He said, what we need is greater philosophy. And he says, when we have greater philosophy, all of life's problems will be completely solved. This is human evolution. I raised my hand because I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and I said to him, philosophy? And I said this in, very, just a, in just a very, uh, how should I put this, sincere way. And I said, do you really believe life's answers will be solved by philosophy? I said, for thousands of years, they have debated philosophy, and they're still dealing with the problems that they were facing back then. He just stared at me. Class was utterly silent. I got to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> we had a good discussion afterwards. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, evil is a big problem in this world, not just out there, but just in our own heart. 
We live in a very fractured world. Malcolm Muggeridge, the great journalist, said it this way, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted truth or fact. It's obviously experiential. I was listening to this, uh, uh, Robbie Zacharias, he was speaking at Penn State, and somebody said, evil is just subjective. He said, I'm not afraid of that. Morals are just, just subjective. Robbie Zacharias turned to him and said, son, do you lock your door at night? Everyone laughed. Because there was this undeniable reality, there is wickedness in our world. But I'm going to take it a step further. Even if all the wickedness was gone, ladies and gentlemen, even we got rid of every rapist, molester, all the murderers, all the Hitlers, all the generals, all the dictators, even if we got rid of every single one of them, there'd be a big problem, the evil within our own heart. Every person here has the seeds of rebellion in their own heart. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you ever read that book called The Lucifer Effect, anybody ever read that book before? Very interesting book. It was a scientist who basically did this research. He took normal college students who seemed to be somewhat balanced, and he set up this thought experiment where he actually had some of the students play the role of prisoners and some of the students play the role of prison guards. And what he discovered as the situation got more intense over a period of time, he discovered that the prison guards who were students actually became more sadistic. And they would oftentimes uh, cause pain, pain, inflict pain upon these prisoners unnecessarily. The prisoners were in on the whole thing. But these prison guards over time, these regular college students, all of a sudden, when they would want to get these rebellious prison guards to do something, they would begin to press a button and these, and these uh, uh, prisoners would pretend like they were being shocked. But what they begin to discover, all of a sudden, these prison, prison guards begin to press the button over and over and over again. They became sadistic. Normal college students. Given the right time, the right circumstances, the seeds of rebellion begin to grow in each one of us. Malcolm Muggeridge shares his very special story. I've heard it a million times, but it's really powerful. He says this. One day he was in India doing some journalism and some training there. And as he was out there, he looked out into this river, and there he saw a young woman who was bathing. So he thought to himself, you know what? No one's around. This is my opportunity. I'm going to go pursue this woman and give her an indecent proposition. I will pay her, sleep with her, and no one will know. So he jumps into this river, and he begins swimming towards this woman. And as he's swimming to this, towards this woman, he's just running away and escaping all of his emotion and all of the guilt. And he's just thinking to himself, I'm just going to do this, and I will take care of the consequences later on. And as he gets closer and closer, he stops, and he realizes, as he's just a few feet away from her, this woman, when she stands up out of the water, she was leprous. And as he's about to say, what a leprous woman, when it dawns on him at that very moment, what a leprous heart. The Bible says something very interesting. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this young man, here he is in Loma Linda. He is struggling within the sin with his own heart. He sees the evil that's out in the world. In fact, when I was actually in um, Modesto, I had a very wealthy Indian man who contacted me and he says, I want to meet with you. He was a Hindu, one of the wealthiest people in all of Modesto. Doesn't say too much, but there's a lot of people in Modesto. 
We sat down, we were talking. He got to the core of the issue and he says, this is the issue right here. He says this, I deal with a lot of money, big house. He says, I own a construction company that's well known. But he says, I have a big problem. This is an older gentleman who has a lot of health issues. And he says, this is my problem. I keep seeing too much greed in people. And he says, what is the purpose of life? Is it just greed? Get as much as you can, as fast as you can get it? And this man, this Hindu man, was faced with the reality, and that is there is evil present in this world, not just in our own hearts. But here this young man is, he's contemplating all the, the wisdom and talk of all these people, when all of a sudden, Jesus decides to speak up. Muhammad said, I am the prophet of Allah. Buddha says, I am a teacher of Nirvana. Krishna says, I am the reincarnation or the avatar of Vishnu, the eighth one. But then Jesus says something very remarkable in this tabletop conversation. He says this, John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now watch what he says next. It's very remarkable. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. When Jesus wanted to give the greatest picture of God, he honed in on this very beautiful example. He said, I am the good shepherd. Something that would be familiar to all of his hearers. A man who would have to be so patient with the animals that he was taking care of. Out of all the pictures Jesus could have introduced about who God really was, ladies and gentlemen, he introduced this idea that God was a good shepherd. When I was in India, I never forgot, I was just driving by these fields and I saw these gigantic 80-foot statues of Shiva, six arms with the spear in one hand, weapons in the other, his tongue sticking out. There was this fierce look and there were people at the foot of this statue and they were giving all these sacrifices. They were giving all these offerings. And as we got back to the church that was there in India, there was this very interesting picture of Jesus and there he was praying in the garden. I said something that left a, a mark upon those students. I said, Shiva would not give his life for you, but Jesus would. When you think about all the pictures of God, Jesus begin to, begins to introduce a very unusual picture of God, one that has this epitome in love, tenderness, care, and a satisfaction that no other things can give in this entire world. Jesus introduces this picture of God being the good shepherd. He says it again, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down, now notice this, my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. Even Jesus told Pilate, who was surrounded by pluralism, he said to him, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And as Jesus is talking to this young man from Loma Linda, 
He begins to share this very paternal picture of who God is. In fact, when you go to the Old Testament, the word for God, the word for Father being used for God is only just a handful of times. When you go into the New Testament, the word Father connected to God in the New Testament is over 100 times, which tells you the Jews believed that God was a father, but they did not believe he was very fatherly. And as Jesus began to really impress upon his hearers this beautiful kind of picture, the love of God began to spring up in people's hearts. Each one of us is dealing with a big problem here, a very big problem. And that is the problem of sin. Sin destroys our peace. Sin wipes out our connection with heaven. You know, Ellen White puts it this way. She says, the biggest problems in life is not poverty or toil. She said, it is guilt. It is sin. One psychologist said this. He said, I could get rid of half my patients if only they knew there was forgiveness for them. It's one, something each one of us desires. We desire this kind of peace. The world's religions, the world's philosophy teaches very unusual kind of process in which uh, for us to obtain this peace. They first teach that there needs to be a change in the life. And as you have that change in the life, it all of a sudden then is able to produce a relationship with some kind of heavenly figure. And as you have that relationship, all of a sudden you will experience that peace that you are longing for. But what God does that is very unusual, he reverses that and he says, what I offer to you first is heaven's peace so that you may have this relationship with me and ultimately the byproduct will be change the natural byproduct as you accept God's peace for your life. There's one thing I struggled with when I was a, uh, becoming a Christian, especially when I was in college, and it was this idea that God really cared for me. You know, I know God likes me. I know God is willing to forgive, but this idea that God really loves me was very emotionally distant. Intellectually, I knew it was there. Emotionally, it was not there. To me, justification just seemed like this whole idea that God would just wipe away your sin, but would be shaking his head at the same time. I could not detach that picture, and there was not this kind of freedom that I had in the righteousness of Christ. You know what is so unique, though, about the Christian religion that no other religion possesses? It is this, that Christianity is what is considered a historical religion. What do you mean by historical religion? Salvation is something that is provided for in the past. Whereas other religions teach that salvation must be a present day or present tense thing that you must attempt to. Christianity is so unique in that sense that the salvation that God gave to us was paid for us 2,000 years ago. Can you say amen to that? And this is really a powerful thought when you begin to think about this. 
You know, Thomas was the one who went to India. He was somebody who Jesus had to lay down this great, beautiful truth that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man could come through the Father except through Jesus and his righteousness. And when Jesus dwells in each one of us, ladies and gentlemen, we can have that beautiful peace. You may be struggling with sin. You may be struggling with all the evils that take place. You may deal with your own backsliding and wonder to yourself, how in the world can there be a God who actually loves me in spite of all these things. And I love this beautiful quote. This quote here has touched my heart more than anything else. Out of all the things that could be said, it's this. We are not to be anxious about what Christ and God think of us. We're not to be anxious about that, wondering what in the world is God thinking about me? We're not to be anxious about what God, Christ and God think of us. Now watch this. But about what God thinks of Christ, our substitute. And when you look back to the life of Christ and you see that measured life there, ladies and gentlemen, you find a father who was well pleased with his son. And when Jesus is dwelling in your life, you will discover that the father's view of you is the same. Some of you are thinking to yourself, how in the world could it be that in my present state, that if I was to accept Jesus Christ, that somehow God the Father would look upon me with some kind of delight when I have not changed my ways yet? You see, this is the problem with Christianity. One of the hardest things for me to fully realize, that was this, that Christ was the perfect example of God's love. And if he was willing to wrap his arms around sinners and make God accessible 2,000 years ago, he's willing to do that for me today. When I was in college, I always kept thinking to myself, how is it that everybody else has it together? Everyone's got a good family, good morals, good upbringing. And then when I would look back on my own life, I would just see despair and darkness and discouragement. And then when I would think upon my own faults, I would always wonder to myself, God, how can you love me? You know, interesting, there was a story one day about a man who had a sister. He had three sisters, and he was dying in his bed, and he had all this doubt and discouragement. He just had a few moments left in his life. So his sister said, you know what, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to encourage him. So he walks in there, she walks in there, and she says to him, if you confess your sins, Jesus will forgive you. And the man says, I'm confessing my sins. And she says, you need to start praying for repentance. And he says, I'm praying for repentance. There's no peace here. And then she begins to lay down so many things he needs to do, and he's just there, and he doesn't have this peace in his own heart. She leaves. The next sister comes in, and she says to him, Brother, what you need to do is you just need to open your heart to God, and you need to let him cleanse you from sin. All you need to do is just make this choice right here, right now, and you can do this. And he said, I've been trying to do that the last hour, and he's sensing the darkness closing in upon him third sister comes in she says something so interesting doesn't take the route the other sisters do she says this when Jesus 
was on the cross, all he could think about was you. His heart was so overwhelmed with this love for you that he was willing to go to the cross for you because he could not be in heaven without you. And the man, his eyes begin to open up and he begins to realize this great truth that the gospel isn't about what God thinks of us. The gospel is about what God thinks of Christ. And as we open our hearts to that gospel, we will reap its benefits. Somebody said many years ago, they said the third angel's message is justification by faith. That is the third angel's message. When you take a good look at the third angel's message, it really doesn't sound like justification by faith. Sounds like some great warning to beware of the mark of the beast. But the beauty of that is what's implicit. You know, if you're driving down this road and you're coming across this T intersection and I don't say, and I say to you, don't turn left, don't turn left, don't turn left, don't turn left, don't turn left. You know what the implication is? Turn right. End of time, this powerful message is going to the end of the world saying, don't worship the beast, don't worship his ways, don't worship the mark of the beast, don't get all these things. The implication is accept the righteousness of Christ that is available for each and every one of you. When you think about Christ and you think about sanctification, you think about justification, wondering what in the world do these things mean? Think about it like this. What Jesus does for you or has done for you and what the Holy Spirit does in you. What Jesus has done for you, is that past, future, or present tense? It's not a hard one. What Jesus has done for you, is that past, future, or present tense? Very good, you passed English 101. But what the Holy Spirit does in you, is that past, future, or present tense? It's present tense. When you think about what Jesus did for you, was his sacrifice complete, yes or no? Absolutely, he said, it is finished. The plan of redemption was not, but that sacrifice was complete. The Holy Spirit's work in you, is that finished? Because last time I checked, I didn't see any chariots ready to take you to heaven. But what Jesus did on the cross, was that a finished work? Absolutely. What the Holy Spirit does in you, that's an unfinished work. It's ongoing. Ladies and gentlemen, you are saved by a finished work, not an unfinished work. And this is what makes the gospel so unique in this perspective, that what Christ is offering to you is a finished and done work. And the hardest thing for people to understand and grasp is this idea that Jesus has done it for me. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith. Amen? By grace are you saved through faith. I love what C.H. Spurgeon says here. Great, powerful evangelists will come to an end. What a state of privilege, he says. It includes our justification before God. But the term acceptance, in other words, being acceptance, accepting with God, in the Greek means more than that. It signifies, notice this, we are the objects of divine complacence or compliance. May even, now watch this, of divine delight. Divine delight? Absolutely. How marvelous that we, worms, mortals, sinners, should be the objects of divine love, but it is only in the beloved. Some Christians seem to be accepted in their own experience, at least that is their apprehension. When their spirit is lively and their hopes bright, they think God accepts them, for they feel so high. 
so heavenly minded, so drawn above the earth, but when their souls cleave to the dust, they are victims of the fear they are no longer accepted. If they could but see that all their high joys do not exalt them, and all their low despondencies do not really depress them in the Father's sight, but that they, are sta they stand accepted in the one who never alters, in the one who is always beloved of God, always perfect, always without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, how much happier they would be and how much more they would honor the Savior. To walk away, ladies and gentlemen, from this church tonight, you can have the privilege of saying, because of Jesus, the Father delights in me right now. There is accessibility to the throne of God that I may continue this relationship with God in spite of the person I am. And I praise God because it is this beautiful truth that has carried and empowered my walk with God, knowing that God loves me in spite of me. Can you say amen to that? Such a powerful truth when you begin to really think about this, that when Jesus is in your proximity, you cannot be lost. The goal is just to keep him there. He'll take care of the sin problem. Going back to the story of Jesus and this young man, what this young man needed more than anything was to know there was a God in heaven who loved him in spite of what was going on. But the beautiful thing is, God not only makes us beautiful in heaven through justification, he begins a slow, day-by-day -day process of making us beautiful here on earth. Can you say amen to that? This is something Jesus is willing to give. God is willing to give to any person they will believe. And end with this story. Friend Mike was telling me this true story took place. He was talking to one of the producers for 3ABN. This man began to share his worship thought to all, this, all the workers there, and he said this. He had a very interesting experience some time ago. He went to the doctors just to get a basic physical. Went there, got the physical, everything seemed to be okay. The doctor had this concerned look on his face, just wondered what in the world's wrong. The doctor said, I want you to stay behind for a little bit. I want to talk to you. He said, we tested your blood. We've discovered you have the AIDS virus. This young man, this man is thinking to himself, how in the world could I have gotten this? Can you imagine if you heard that news, your world would be turned upside down. So as he's hearing this news, his mind begins to race backwards in time, thinking about anything that he might have done that might have caused this. And he remembered several years ago, he got some strange mosquito bite. And he thinks to himself, maybe it was that. The next concern on this man's life, he begins to think about his family, his wife. What if she has this virus? What if he's given it to her? And then he thinks about his young child that was just born. What if this child has this? So immediately he raced home, brought the family to the hospital. They were tested. And this man for some time lived with this great anxiety of now having the AIDS virus. What would people say about him? What would he have to do to stay alive, stay alive as much as possible? His whole life was now turned upside down. Family was tested. Surprisingly, none of them had the AIDS virus. 
He was a bit confused about that. Went to the doctor and said, hey, we need to retest my blood again. They retested his blood. And they discovered he didn't have the virus. True story. The vials were apparently switched with an 80-year-old woman. This 80-year-old woman was about to receive the news that somehow she had contracted the AIDS virus. Ladies and gentlemen, each one of us has a sin virus. But Jesus became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of Christ. And just how you are, if you are willing to open your heart and say, Lord, I want you to dwell there, he will gladly accept that offer regardless of the person you are. And you will have his righteousness, his covering, his forgiveness, and ultimately, above all things, heaven's peace. So you're thinking about your own experience, thinking about your own sin, your own heart, thinking about the recent failures, the lack of spiritual power in your life. Ladies and gentlemen, God is inviting you to lay that at the foot of the cross. And if that's your desire, that you just want to come to God just as you are, would you mind bowing your heads with me as we take a moment of silence to pray and to open our own hearts individually to God and come to Him? It's a mess we are. Father in heaven, we just thank you for a love, for a sacrifice that was in the past yet for a love that is so present. Thank you, God, that you're willing to pour out your love. God, you have already poured out your love, even now. And it is drawing us to you. We thank you, God, that in spite of her failures and circumstances, God, that you truly love us and that your throne is accessible because of Jesus for people like us. May every person leave, God, having the peace of heaven that cannot be bought with money or price. May every person leave with the peace of heaven knowing that God is with them. Thank you, God. Thank you for hearing our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.